We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. The baseball season is go, go, go. It's nonstop, relentless for every night, six straight months, and then hopefully another month in October. You also have work, friends, family, and a million other things going on. That's when you reach for a Coors Light. It's made to chill. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. I mean, the mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when your beer is cold. Is there anything better than opening up your refrigerator after a long day, seeing that icy cold Coors Light can or bottle in your fridge? The answer is no, there's nothing better. That's why... When it's time to chill, you choose Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So that's why when you want to hit reset, reach for a beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate. What's up and welcome to a history edition of the Bronx Pinstripe Show. Today, Elston Howard breaks the Yankees' color barrier. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends, Bet Online. We got some good news as far as sports returning is concerned this week, and there is no shortage of action going on at betonline.ag. You can bet on NASCAR, simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC events, and participate in a $10,000 Madden Bracket Challenge that you can enter for free. Also, check out the final dance on their YouTube channel, where they have an exclusive interview with ex-Chicago Bulls Ron Harper, Horace Grant, Bill Cartwright, and Craig Hodges discussing the MJ documentary. Visit betonline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE to receive your new welcome bonus. BetOnline, your online wagering solution. 
A man of great gentleness and dignity. One of the all-time Yankee greats. American League MVP in 1963. Winner of two gold gloves. A fitting leader to be the first black player to wear the Yankee uniform. If, indeed, humility is a trademark of many great men, Elston Howard was one of the truly great Yankees. That's what Elston Howard's Yankee Stadium Monument Park plaque says, which was dedicated on July 21st, 1984. The only unfortunate thing about the day was that Elston was not alive to witness the plaque ceremony and his number 32 being retired. Before we dive into the episode, I just want to say that with everything our country is going through right now, it's the perfect time to discuss Elston Howard. Maybe you know a lot about him. Maybe you just know that he was the first black Yankees player. Maybe you've never heard of him. Either way, I hope you learn a thing or two from the next 20 minutes or so, because I sure did. The first part of this episode is about the Yankees' integration history, which is not great. There are some quotes from prominent Yankees personnel that are upsetting, but it's important to discuss them because it highlights even more what Elston and others were going through. We want to think of the Yankees as always being the model organization, not only for winning, but for their baseball operations and how they conduct themselves. The reality is that in the late 1940s and 1950s, they were slow to integrate. Elston Howard became the first African-American player in Yankees history on April 14, 1955. This was one day shy of eight years after Jackie Robinson broke baseball's color barrier. By 1949, both the Yankees' crosstown rivals, the Dodgers and Giants, were integrated. By 1953, half of baseball teams were integrated. In 1955, the Yankees were the fourth to last team to integrate. The Phillies, Tigers, and Red Sox came after them. Overall, the American League was behind the National League. Every team was integrated by 1959, though, but it took 12 years. It was a slow process. There's an article I read in the New York Times titled, When the Yankees Were Not Ready for Willie Mays, that touches on some of the stubbornness and just flat-out racism going on in the Yankees organization. To summarize, Yankee scouts had the same look at Willie Mays that the Giants did because he played a game at the Polo Grounds in May 1949 when his Birmingham Black Barons played the New York Cubans of the Negro League. Mays was just 18 years old at the time, not even out of high school yet, but his talent was obvious. On that trip to New York, the Black Barons also played a semi-pro team called the Brooklyn Bushwicks. The Yankee scouts got a second look at Mays and a second chance to ignore his talent. A year later, the Black Barons came back to New York to play the Cubans. Once again, Yankee scouts were in attendance. Mays was now 19 and clearly the best player on the field. Nine days later, the Giants signed the center fielder. According to the article, which also cites a book called Baseball's Great Experiment, the Yankee scouts who were in attendance at these games were in GM George Weiss's inner circle. You might remember from the Billy Martin episode that Weiss was very concerned with public perception and how his players conducted themselves. It would also seem that he and his scouts discriminated when it came to black players. The scout that saw Mays play twice at the polo grounds was named Bill McCory. He said, the kid can't hit a curveball. I got no use for him or any of them. No N-word will ever have a berth on any train I'm running. George Weiss said something equally disgusting in 1952. After having signed Howard and other black players, and after teams like the Dodgers and Giants had prominent black stars come to their teams with great success. He said, we don't want that sort of crowd. It would offend box holders from Westchester to have to sit with N-words. Remember Lon Tross' comments about low-income fans staying out of the legend seats a few years ago? 
Of course, money was also behind the racism. The Negro League teams rented MLB ballparks. This generated thousands of dollars in revenue for teams like the Yankees. They feared that if prominent black stars left the Negro Leagues for the major leagues, those teams would fold and that revenue would be lost. When the Yankees did explore Negro League players, they often went through Tom Baird, the owner of the Kansas City Monarchs, and he just happened to also be a registered member of the Kansas Ku Klux Klan. Baird was not officially a part of the Yankees organization, but he often said that he felt like he was. While Baird's character was questionable, he did have an eye for talent. The Monarchs produced many great players. He wrote a letter to Weiss dated June 20th, 1950, the day Willie Mays signed with the Giants. The letter said, I signed Ernest Banks, 19-year-old shortstop, and he looks like he will make one hell of a good ball player. No reply from the Yankees. At this time, it was widely written that the Yankees' interest in black players was for show, that they'd only sign veterans and non-prospects to appease critics. In response to the criticism, Weiss said, The Yankees are not going to promote a Negro player to the stadium simply in order to be able to say that they have such a player. We are not going to bow to pressure groups on this issue. To be fair, the Yankees were not exactly trying to patch lineup holes in the 1950s. They were a powerhouse. But there is no ignoring talent like Willie Mays or a prospect like Ernie Banks, no matter how good your team is. The Yankees' standard response was, we're waiting for the right black player, someone who embodies the Yankee way. Then a series of events in 1953 caused people to picket outside Yankee Stadium. The Yankees were close to promoting a first-base prospect named Vic Power. He was born Pello. There's a funny story about why he changed his name from Pello to Power. It's really not the time to discuss that. Go check out his Wikipedia page if you want to know. Power was from Puerto Rico and he had a ton of success in AAA. He would have been the first non-white player for the Yankees, but instead they promoted Gus Trendos from AA. Trendos wound up being a solid player for Baltimore, but in 1953, he was not ready for the majors. Joe Bostic wrote in the New York Amsterdam News, It would appear the only advantage Trandos had was one of circumstance and not being born a Negro. Power was not African American, but he was dark-skinned. When he was passed over for Trandos, blacks and Puerto Ricans picketed together. After the 1953 season, Power was traded along with five players and cash to the Athletics for four players, all white. The kicker came when Weiss gave the reason for trading the promising Power. Maybe he can play, but not for us. He's impudent and he goes for white women. Power is not the Yankee type. The Yankees didn't really care if he could play or not. They were more concerned with the fact that Power was dating a white woman than if they called him up and fans found that out, it would cause ripples. Ripples in their pockets. Makes your skin crawl. Power ended up having a solid career, but he was not the most promising black player in the Yankees organization. Month after the Yankees didn't sign Mays and didn't reply to the letter about Banks, they signed 21-year-old outfielder named Elston Howard from the Monarchs, but it took nearly six years before he debuted with the team. A quick side note before we move on to Howard's career, because I can't help but imagine it. The Yankees had a young rookie outfielder of their own in 1951, Mickey Mantle. Willie and Mickey were rivals throughout their career, but what if they shared an outfield and hit back-to-back in the lineup? That would have been unreal. For Elston Howard, 1951 and 52 were lost due to military service. Perhaps he would have debuted earlier if he wasn't drafted into the Army. When he returned, he was surprised to learn that the Yankees wanted to move his position from outfield to catcher, which he did have some experience with briefly with the Monarchs. Writers came up with a conspiracy that this was a ploy for the team to bury Howard in the minors, seeing as how they had Yogi Berra in the prime of his career 
and it was a pretty odd move to move a guy from the outfield to catcher. Howard was a big guy, listed at 6'2", 196 pounds. He didn't have a ton of speed, though, but he made up for that with good instincts in the outfield. But the Yankees saw him as a catcher. The media characterized him as a victim and a pawn. After their playing days, Jackie Robinson said, You know, in a sense, Elston had it tougher than me. At least I knew Mr. Branch Rickey wanted me. But Elston didn't know if the Yankees wanted him. Howard often said that he couldn't have done what Jackie did in being the first black player in baseball. But he was a pioneer nonetheless, because when it comes to the Yankees, the spotlight always shines brighter. Despite what Elston was feeling, and he did question if the Yankees really wanted him, he didn't let the position change or the negative media attention affect his performance. He worked his ass off to develop his catching skills. The Yankees assigned Bill Dickey to help him, so that might dispel the theory that they didn't want him to succeed. His hard work paid off. He performed in AA in his first year back from the Army, then won the AAA MVP in 1954, primarily as a catcher, then he made the Yankees' opening day roster in 1955. The Yankees finally made the decision to promote a black player to the majors. They withheld public pressure and media scrutiny for a while. It was easy to shrug that off when they were winning every year. But in 1954, they lost the pennant. The excuse that there was no need and they were just waiting for the right player didn't fly anymore. Howard's debut came on April 14th in the second game of the season at Fenway Park when he entered the game in the sixth inning to replace Irv Norin in left field. In the eighth inning, he ripped an RBI single in his first at-bat. Even though they lost the game, it was a great moment for Howard and the Yankees. He'd have to wait until April 20th for his first appearance at Yankee Stadium and April 28th for his first start. Even though the Yankees made the decision to get behind Elston, you could tell they did it with caution. As I said, Howard's debut was April 14 at Fenway Park, but the season opener, which was at home, was April 13th versus the Senators. The Yankees won that game 19-1, so you're telling me there was no pinch-hitting opportunities for Howard in an 18-run opening day route? Come on. A big reason he didn't play every day was because he had no clear position and the Yankees had no clear hole. Howard's versatility was very important in him staying on the roster. Yogi wasn't going anywhere anytime soon. He won back-to-back MVPs in 54 and 55. Mickey and Hank Bauer were starting outfielders no matter what. In hindsight, Howard should have started over Norin, but I guess the Yankees weren't prepared to take that chance yet. In the five years before he became the starting catcher, Howard played both corner outfield positions and first base in addition to catcher, which earned him about 100 games of playing time a year. Playing time wasn't his only hurdle. After his death, Elston's wife Arlene said that he came home angry many times and that people might not realize how hard it was to be the first black New York Yankee. The hotels near their spring training facilities didn't allow for blacks, so he and others had to find housing elsewhere. He didn't show his frustration outwardly, though. I guess in a way that's the Yankee type Weiss wanted, and not, as writer-author Daly put it in 1955, like the, quote, sensitive and crusading Jackie Robinson. Casey Stengel also referred to Elson as 8-ball, to his face and in front of teammates. It's pretty easy to find racist quotes attributed to Stengel over the years, and this is just another example of that. You would assume that's the reason Elson didn't play every day, but people close to the team at that time said it really was because there was no clear spot for Howard. Stengel did his best to get him on the field because he knew he could help the team win, and most of Howard's teammates accepted him. When he was a rookie, Moose Scourin picked him up from the train station on occasions. Yogi and Phil Rizzuto invited him out to dine and socialize with the team, and he and Yogi remained close after their playing days as well. They were a coach on the same staff in the 1970s for the Yankees and spoke regularly on the phone in the offseason all the way up to Howard's death. 
Hank Bauer took Elston under his wing, though. They lockered next to one another, and whenever someone in the stands yelled a racial slur, it was Bauer who would stick his head out of the dugout first and yell back. And nobody wanted to mess with Bauer, because he was an ex-Marine, and he was a bad mother effer. When asked why he would stand up for Howard, Bauer said, because he is my friend. Elston's friends called him Ellie. Ellie's indoctrination into the clubhouse came on May 14th, when he smacked a walk-off two-run triple to beat the Tigers. Joe Collins and Mickey Mantle laid out an honorary carpet of towels from his locker to the shower to show their appreciation. The Yankees advanced to the World Series each of Howard's first four years, going 2-2. Two and two. In 1958, they had a rematch with the Milwaukee Braves and had to come back from 3-1 to one down to win the series. Ellie was given the Babe Ruth Award for being the most outstanding player for his series-winning single in the eighth inning of Game 7. He was the first black player to win the award. In Milwaukee, nearly 50,000 local fans root for a repeat of last year's seventh game triumph, but in the second, with Berra on first, Howard lays down a bunt. Torrey fields, but fumbles the flip to Burdett at first, runners on first and third. Jerry Lumpy up next. Rounds one to Torrey, who worries about Berra, throws late to first, and hits the runner. Bases loaded. Next batter, Moose Scourin. The Moose rounds one to short. Lumpy is forced, but Berra scores, and the Yankees tie the score. Tony Kubek next at bat, lifting a sacrifice fly to left. Howard comes across to make the score two to one. Score is still tied in the eighth, two out. Berra at bat. Yogi lashes a double off the fence, and the Yankee rally is on the way. Nelson Howard wraps Burdett's third pitch through the center. Drive Berra across with a winning run. For the 18th time in 24 World Series, the New York Yankees are once again the champions. By 1960, Yogi was aging and no longer an everyday catcher. Howard, now 31 years old, caught 91 games that year. His best season came the next year when he started 106 games at catcher and hit 348 with 21 homers. A big shift for the team, but for Elston as well was that Stengel was replaced as manager with Ralph Houck, and Ellie enjoyed playing for him much more than he did for Stengel. From 61 to 64, he posted a 308 batting average with a 133 OPS+. In 1963, he won the MVP, also the first black player in the American League to do so. He helped the Yankees win nine pennants and four championships, and was named an All-Star for nine consecutive years, starting in 1957. In 1965, he started to dip. Injuries and age started to catch up with him. Found it odd that he didn't end his career with the Yankees. He was traded to the Red Sox of all teams in 1967. After a decade of subpar play, the Red Sox shockingly won the pennant in 67. They were looking for a veteran catcher with winning experience. Howard was only hitting 196 that year, but he fit the bill. He was shocked and didn't want to report to Boston at first, but he eventually changed his mind. Ellie was always a pro, and that wouldn't change just because he was a Red Sox now. The fact that he was on that Sox team made it so he lost the World Series six times, tied for a record as a player with Pee Wee Reese. Howard has a couple other quirky facts about his career. His 933 lifetime fielding percentage as a catcher was a major league record from 1967 to 1973. This from a guy who was thrust into the position, all while trying to become the first black player in Yankees history. This one's from Wikipedia, so take it with a grain of salt but he is credited with being the first player to use the extended index finger and pinky finger to indicate their two outs. 
Apparently, he also invented the batting donut. Those are two pretty random but awesome baseball inventions. After he retired, Howard had offers to manage in low-level and independent leagues, but he didn't want to start at the bottom. He was the first base coach for the Yankees from 1969 to 79, winning two more championships. He was the first black coach in the American League, but he wanted to be the first black manager in baseball when Houck stepped down in 1973. It didn't happen for him, though, but he remained on the staff while Bill Verdon and Billy Martin managed the team. And it was a good thing that he was there through the zoo years. He played peacemaker in the infamous Reggie Billy Brawl in 1977 and helped guide Jackson through all the chaos. You might remember this clip from the Billy Martin episode. It's of Reggie talking on Howard Stern about being a black player on the Yankees. As a black man, as a colored player, you would have gotten some shit. Yes, I yeah. would have had an. I, I could have been barred from the game. I could have been suspended. You can't. You cannot touch authority in baseball. Right. And and you know, I was raised that way, so I never would have put my hands on unless he hits me first. Right. Well, that's a whole different story. Uh, but yes. you hated him, right? You hated Billy Martin. I didn't like him. I didn't waste my time hating people. It, it, it's too much effort. He played mind games with you. I mean, he would. Yes. He didn't want. Well, he. You know, batting fourth. Uh-huh. The fourth position, mm-hmm. cleanup, as mm-hmm. they say. Yeah, he wouldn't let it happen. He wouldn't let Reggie, really? Mr. Jackson, right. do this. Right. Now, right. Uh, why? Why the that bug up his ass? That was bad for the team. Well, because I think that he thought it was very important to me, which it was. Yes. Um, at the same time, it's a special thing at that time. Who's never been a black superstar with the Yankees, although Elston Howard was a great, great player. I think what you're implying is... Reggie's comments about being a black superstar in the Yankees were interesting. It's kind of an offhand comment, but it's true. Elson was never a superstar the way Reggie was. Part of that was out of his control. He played on a team with Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris, and Yogi Berra. But part of that was by design. He wasn't outspoken and flashy like Reggie. It wouldn't have worked on the 1950s Yankees, and he knew it. In 1965, the Yankees called up 21-year-old African-American outfielder Roy White. He bridged the gap between the Howard era and the Reggie era. Roy White was a great player, even though he doesn't have much notoriety. He arrived just after the 50s and 60s Yankees dynasties were ending, which probably plays a factor there. In 15 seasons, he earned two top 15 MVP finishes and two All-Star teams. He was also on the championship teams in 77 and 78. Ten years after Ellie, White went through difficulty of his own coming up to the Yankee system. The AA team he played for were called the Columbus Confederate Yankees. Their uniform had a Confederate flag patch on it. Roy said he didn't pay too much attention to the uniform and was more focused on the civil rights movement and dealing with racism in the South. The team played in Georgia, but without Ellie, there may have been no Roy White. In the 1980s, the Yankees had many great African-American players, Willie Randolph, Ricky Henderson, Dave Winfield, among others. Ellie paved the way for all of them, and he paved the way for future Latin and Japanese players to wear the pinstripes as well. The Yankees made sure to keep Ellie in the organization after he got sick and could no longer coach. Unfortunately, he died at just 51 years old from a heart condition in 1980. After he passed, Red Smith wrote in the New York Times, the Yankees organization lost more class on the weekend than George Steinbrenner could buy in 10 years. Thank you, Ellie, and thanks for listening.